Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and go to Mark 1. Uh, if we have kids that aren't down in the Christmas program practice and need to be dismissed, you can go ahead and do that at this time. Mark 1, page 836, 836, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seats. Let's take a second and pray and uh, ask God's blessing on our time. Good to see you, Randy. Good to see you here. Uh, yeah. Father, thank you that we can be together today. Father, we dare not open your word without asking you to, um, to guide our time. Lord, your word is powerful. It says it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And this is what we need to hear. We need to hear your word by your spirit impressed upon our hearts right now. And so I pray, Father, I pray that's what would happen. And right now, remove the distractions that are here, that are in our souls, in our minds. The enemy wants to oppose this right now. And I pray that, that we would... would be strong against temptations, that you'd send angels and that would fight that so that we could worship you through what is said in your word here. And so we confess our weakness, we confess our dependence upon you, and we need you. And so uh, we dare not open your word without asking you to, to lead us. And uh, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Boy, we sang some good songs today, some good theology there. And I, I, you know I, I say this often, um, make sure you're thinking through what we're singing. Um, it's, there's just some really good things to rejoice about, about our salvation. Um, I have one song in there, uh, uh, one song, I can't remember exactly which one off the top of my head right now, but it talks about our debt has been paid and the victory is the Lord is my salvation. That our debt has been paid and the victory has been won. Man, you could just stop and kind of think on that for the rest of the day. The debt's been paid and the victory's been won. The Lord is our salvation. So let's never look at songs as something to kind of get to the message or, or whatever, just part of the service. This is theology that is meant to minister to our souls. And I appreciate all the people who work on the music teams and, and they work so hard on that, the AV guys. And, and so thank you. And thank you for singing really well today. Well, we're Mark 1. I told you before that what we're going to be talking about today is the idea of Jesus' authority. You know, you could be in an awkward situation if you don't recognize authority when authority is present in front of you. I was in Bible college, and I remember my, uh, I was taking second-year Greek, and my second-year Greek teacher was probably my favorite teacher that I had in college. And I remember one day he came into class and we were going to discuss in Greek grammar what is known as the Granville Sharp Rule. Okay, now I'm not going to go into all that, probably because I've forgotten most of it, to be honest with you, but I'm not going to go into all that. But he, I remember that was the lecture that day and he told this story. He said that one day um, uh, there was a, uh, uh, a Jehovah's Witness that came to his door and knocked on his door and uh, wanted to say that Jesus Christ 
is, is a God, okay? And he said, and I can prove it to you by looking at John chapter 1. And so my Greek professor is standing at the door listening to this man speak about why Jesus is not the God, he's only a God. And um, he says, see right there, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he says, now, you can't see this. This is a Jehovah's Witness talking to my Greek teacher. He says, now, you can't see this, but you see, the Bible was originally written, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, okay? And so, um, and so there's, there's a little rule, there's a little word here, and there's this thing called, a, 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 and a, you know, I don't mean to insult you or try to sound like I'm smart or anything like that, but there's a, it's called a Granville Sharp rule, okay? And so my Greek teacher's standing they're nodding. Mm-hmm. And so he says, so what it means is that really, if you really were to look at the Greek text, it would say that Jesus is a God. It's not the God here. And so, you, you know, you, I don't mean to be, you know, arrogant with my knowledge, but, you know, this is, this is, this is what is in there. And so my, my Greek teacher said, well, you know, it's funny because I'm going to be talking about this with my Greek students, you know, tomorrow. <laughs> and so he's like, what? He's like, I teach Greek. And he's like, you do? Like, yeah. He's like, oh. <laughs> it was an awkward moment now all of a sudden because he didn't realize that he was talking to someone that had, was a much better authority on the subject than uh, what he thought he was going to be. Yeah, I told you what tied these passages together here, uh, these stories together here in Mark. Um, these little section here is the idea of Jesus' authority. And here's, if I'm going to have one big idea for the sermon, it's going to be this, is that good things happen to those who recognize God's authority, okay? Good things happen to those who recognize God's authority. And we keep coming back to that throughout this message here. I'm going to show you from this text what I mean by that. So, but that's the big idea today. Good things happen to those who recognize God's authority, Let's dive right in. We've already read the text, so I won't read it again here. But in verses 16 through 20, what we find here is Jesus calling the first disciples. And it's an interesting scenario here as he goes up to uh, first Simon and Andrew and, and he tells them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I, there's so many nuances of the text that I'm not going to have time to get into today. But I will say this is that the idea there, he says, I will make you become a fisher of men, meaning that this was a process that he was asking the disciples to join him with. And so the discipleship relationship that we have with God, the relationship that we have with God is a process that he puts us on and it lasts all of our lives. So if there's a time in your life where you, you feel like you've graduated or something in your spiritual journey, it's wrong because it's a process. I'm going to make you become this, okay? And so what he's doing here is he says, I want you to leave what you know. I want you to leave uh, um, your, your nets and I want you to follow me. And so they do. Then later on, uh, James and John, very similarly, they're mending nets. They're also fishermen. And he says, follow me. And they do that. So I said, good things happen to those who recognize God's authority here. Here's the first example that I see from this text is this. Financial pressure loses its grip on you. Financial pressure loses its grip on you. And I said, where are you getting this? Okay, I'm going back to these four disciples being called. They were fishermen. Mark makes it very clear that he, is, uh, that he points out what their occupation was. Now, before I continue on, I want to make sure what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that financial pressures are removed when we recognize God's authority. 
That's prosperity gospel. What I am saying, which is wrong, what I am saying is that it loses its grip on us, okay, and on you. Um, what Mark is, is accounting here is that Jesus was asking these men to leave their occupation, to leave their livelihood, and he was going to give them a new occupation. Have you ever tried to switch careers late in life? I'm here, it's, I hear it's very difficult to switch careers late in life. And this is what Jesus was asking him to do. Fishing is what, what these guys knew. It was what they understood. They lived it. They breathed it. They, 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 they knew the ins and outs of it. And yet Jesus was saying, I want you to leave that. I want you to leave this comfort zone here. I want you to abandon a trade I want you to abandon this and with really no discussion about how they were going to supplement their income. There was really no discussion at that point of like what they were going to do for income, but they did it because they recognized Jesus' authority in their life. They, they didn't say, well, how are we going to eat? Or, or they didn't say, well, how are we going to get income here? That pressure, that financial pressure that we all feel when we recognize God's authority in our life, all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's removed. And of course, we have to work. And of course, we have to have jobs. And, and the Bible makes it very clear about that. But that pressure of how are we going to live? I've got to save up a certain amount of money, or I've got to have this, or, or whatever. It's just removed when we recognize that God is in control of our lives. Now, Jesus, he promoted generous giving. If we were to look at his teachings, if we look at the teachings of the New Testament, we're going to see that we would see that there's this idea of generous giving uh, that's been taught. And so an application to this point here is how are we with our money? Are we generous with our money? Do we give it away? Do we support the needs of the church? Do we support the needs of other people? Are we generous givers? Or does money have a really tight grip over us? And the, the, the uncertainty of the future, and we got to make sure that we're secure, does it have a tight grip on us? Now again, it's okay to plan ahead. There's benefits to that, but it can't have that grip on us. It can't be our hope. And what Jesus was asking these disciples here, these first four disciples here, when he talks to them, he says, I want you to leave what is, where you're finding security. I want you to follow me. And they did. They didn't have that grip on, them, on their lives anymore. Now, I told you the New Testament, it doesn't teach the Old Testament idea of the tithe, um, which is 10%. Uh, that's a, a tithe just means tenth. Um, it was kind of a, a, it was similar to a taxation system in the Old Testament where people would give a tenth certain times a year and actually worked out if you added it all together, it would be about 33 and a third percent a year um, that they would pay of their income. The New Testament doesn't say that. Um, Rather, the New Testament talks about generous giving. Second Corinthians chapter 8, uh, I think not too awful long ago, Wayne uh, taught from that text here. And the idea is, is that we don't teach that in order to be generous people or in order to fulfill God's commands to be generous, you have to give 10% to the church. Um, it may be a good guideline to go off of, but we have to be generous and we have to think about, okay, are we, uh, are we giving things to people? Recently, Anouk and I looked at our budget, and we, this was one of the questions we asked is, is, okay, are we being generous with our money, and, and are we thinking that through? Um, 
And because and, we don't want financial pressure to have a grip on us. And when you recognize God's authority in our lives, you realize that he's in control of all the income. He's in control of all that we have anyway. And so we don't have to worry about it any longer. It's his money anyway. And so we just need to be managers of what he's given to us. But the problem is sometimes what he's given to us has a grip on us when we forget the authority God has over us. So let me illustrate it this way. If Anouk and I decide we're going to go out on a date, and so we're going to hire a babysitter, okay? We're going to hire a babysitter. And um, I don't know who to pick on. Jordis. I'll pick on Jordis. Jordis is our babysitter, okay? So we say, Jordis, here's, here's $75, okay? $75. Now, what you need to do with the $75 is you need to um, make sure you buy some pizza from Marco's Pizza, and then you keep the rest of the money for watching the kids, okay? So that's the deal. Anouk and I go out on the date, and then we come back, and we're like, how did it go? Jordis is like, awesome. She's like, and I said, how did the pizza work out? She said, well, I decided to get a $3 bag of candy instead and feed that to Isaiah and Mia for dinner. Uh, I just thought it made more financial sense for me to do that, okay? Now, is Anook and I, are we going to be happy about that? I mean, the kids would be, okay? <laughs> the kids would be happy with that. But are Anook and I going to be happy? We're not going to be happy with that. Why? Because she made a decision about a money that really wasn't her decision to make. Now, you would never do this, right, George? You, no? Okay. All right. Just making sure. All right. Okay. So, so she made a decision about money that really wasn't hers to do. But we do the exact same thing sometimes. God says, be generous, give it away. But it has such a grip over us sometimes that we say, well, I'm going to make better sense and I'm going to do this instead of that. You see, when we recognize God's authority in our life over all areas of our life, including finances, it just loses its power over us. And so when I see this in this text here, the calling of the disciples, one of the applications I see is that they did not let the worry of financial security keep them from following Christ they were all in, and they followed Christ. So good things happen to those who recognize God's authority. Secondly, not only do financial pressures lose its grip on us, but familial or family assumptions lose their power over you. Okay? Now, where am I getting that? Well, you look at, again, with the calling of the first four disciples. Now, you see first Simon and Andrew and they leave, okay, for their fishermen. But then did you notice about James and John, there's more people involved in this. Did you notice that? When, when he goes to James and John, they're mending the nets there, and he says, I want you to follow me. It says they did, but then Mark is very careful to let us know what and who they left behind. Who did James and John leave behind? Zebedee, right? Right? Left, left, James and John left Zebedee. It says, I love how you put it, the word, the, the, the mental image this gives me is great. They left their father Zebedee in the boat. Okay? Poor dad, sitting in the boat. Son's mending nets. He's got a family business going. He's got this family, it seems to be prosperous because they got hired servants. And so things are going well. James and John are mending some nets. Dad's sitting in the boat doing whatever he's doing, maybe taking a nap, who knows. But he's there. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes up and says, you, you two, follow me. And they're like, okay. And they walk away. And there's Dad sitting there. Now, I don't want to read too much into the text. 
But I think it is reasonable to at least entertain the idea of, if not assume, that Zebedee expected his sons to carry on the family business. But they, they, that didn't matter to them. They just walked away. And they said, we're following Christ. Now, the fact that there were hired servants there probably was a, a, a kindness of God to help them make that decision so that their dad wouldn't be left high and dry. But nonetheless, there probably was some assumptions there, some expectations that they had to overcome. And, uh, and they did that because they recognized the authority in their life. You know, um, my parents happen to be visiting today, and it's always dangerous when they do because I usually use them in illustration somehow. But um, a few weeks ago, I told an illustration uh, about the ashtrays and hiding the ashtrays. And my dad said I got that wrong a little bit. He said that he didn't care when his parents were there. It was more of like people, friends from the church. But uh, he's really old, so we'll go with my memory over his. Um, so, um, but what I want to share, though, is that I, was, you know, I want to share something that my dad said the other day that was really cool about this point. Uh, on Thursday, uh, the Winquist invited us. Uh, my parents came in Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening. And so on Thursday night, they, the Winquist were gracious, invited us over for dinner. And so we were over there. And so my dad and Wayne are talking, and we're all in the living room talking. And um, I, the subject of children came up, as, as is you know, often the case when parents are talking. And um, my, uh, my dad made the comment that, you know, my older brother Jason lives in California, my parents and my other brother live in Michigan, and I'm here in Wisconsin. And my dad made the point, he said, yeah, I wish that my, my family lived closer. He says, and this is what I, 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 was, I was really proud of what my dad said. He said, but I'm more concerned about 300 years from now than right now. And um, that was really cool because... Because as parents, we want our kids close, right? And we want our kids to, to, to make sure that we protect them and, and we want to keep them secure and near to us. But one thing I appreciate about my parents is that they always wanted me to serve Jesus no matter where that took me in the world. And I didn't have to worry about family pressure. I didn't have to worry about expectations. I, when I would call home as a college student, and I called home, I said, hey, man, I've got this opportunity to travel for the school and, and learn good ministry experience. You know, the, the answer was go. Go. Do that. Um, I can't tell you how, how helpful that was to me as a, a, as a disciple and learning about Christ and learning how to serve Christ in a ministry capacity. So they did a great job and, uh, of, of keeping that pressure off. But the reason why they were able to do that, and they're not perfect. I mean, believe me, I can tell you plenty of stories. Okay, they're not perfect, okay. But the reason why that I believe they were able to do is because they recognize the authority of God in their lives. And they recognize that children are gifts from the Lord, and it's just something that we're to manage while we have them in our homes and for the purpose of glorifying God and raising servants of the Lord. Now, it was great that they had such an awesome son like me that it made it easy for him, okay? Um, actually, I probably was the hardest one. But the point is, is that God, he gives us children not for us to keep close and not for us to own and not for us to, to, to put pressure on away from serving God, but rather everything we should be doing as parents 
should be to help move them to serve God, even, even if that takes us, them away from us. Now, I know what maybe one of you two are thinking right now. Jeremy, your kids are seven and four. Easy for you to say, okay? Point taken. But it's something that I pray about. It's something that I pray about right now. I pray about right now that when my, when my daughter's 18 and 20, that I would be willing to let her go anywhere in the world if she's serving Jesus. That my son, when he's 18, 20, whenever, if he wants to serve Jesus in a, in a hard place, I'm praying right now that I will be able to have the faith and the uh, understanding of God's authority in my life to not put undue pressure on them to stay. And you pray for me on that. I love my kids, just like you love your kids, for those of you who are parents. But let's pray for each other on that, right? Let's pray that we want to raise our children to serve God, even if that means that we're apart for a few years, because in 300 years, we will be together. And in 3,000 years, we will be together. And in 3 million years, we will be together. And so good things happen to those who recognize God's authority is that these pressures, they're removed. The difficult conversations, the difficulty, you, you, can't, you can't understand the freedom that I experienced when my wife and I felt called to go to Rhode Island, called to go to Illinois, called to go to Wisconsin, and, and we talk to our parents and say, hey, I, I think God's moving us out here. You, you cannot understand the blessing and the freedom that we felt as children to hear our parents say, go, serve Jesus. Recognizing God's authority in our lives frees us up to do that. And so this is what Zebedee, he had to be confronted with. Now, we don't know much about Zebedee. We don't know anything about him. In fact, most likely he didn't live very much longer after this. Uh, later on in the accounts of Jesus, when uh, uh, James and John, it's only about hit their mom after this point. We have nothing else about Zebedee at all. Most people believe that's because he died. I don't know if that's true or not, but if it is true, if it is true, then it wouldn't have been great for him to die knowing that he had just encouraged his kids to follow Jesus Christ. He didn't hang on to him. He said, follow Jesus. So good things happen to those who recognize Jesus' authority or God's authority. And that is, one of the things is this idea of familial responsibilities are that loses its power. So don't let family become between us and submitting to Christ. Don't let your, our children's interests dictate our church attendance. Or, don't, or do we forsake the assembly of ourselves together because a relative happens to visit that day? And I know that those illustrations might be meddling a little bit, but I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't step on someone's toes, so I guess it's you today. But my point is, is that we can't let um, uh, uh, our children come between us and God's authority over our lives. And it's so easy to do. We fight it. We're, we're, we're parents of young children. We get it. We fight it as well. So pray for us on that. I'm not standing up here saying as one who has it all figured out. I'm saying that I know that this is true, though, and that we need to encourage each other in this. So good things happen to those who recognize God's authority. I need to move on. Thirdly, in our text here, and this is where we're getting into the ministry in Capernaum, um, 
and that is this. Thirdly, Jesus' teaching becomes alarming. Now, I chose that word intentionally, alarming, and you're going to see why in here in, in just a minute. I read the text earlier today about verses 21 through 28, and this is when Jesus is, is going to Capernaum, and he goes to the synagogue. Now, one thing you need to understand about that day is you had the temple, you had the synagogue, and the synagogue was a place where people would gather, and they would read the law, the Old Testament, or, or what they had of it at that time, and that there would be rabbis would come, or scribes would come, and there would be instruction that were given. The scribes were in charge of keeping the, uh, those copies of the, of the law. And so that what would happen is, is if there was a visiting rabbi, they would come in, they'd be asked to speak. And so they would get a scroll, they would stand, they would read the scroll of whatever section it was that they wanted to talk about. They would roll up the scroll, they would hand it back to the scribe, they would then sit down, and then from a posture of seating, of being seated, they would then teach the people who had gathered there about what they knew of the, the, that particular passage. It was a place for to come and, and learn and get instruction and taught. What had happened over time, though, is that more and more scribes and more and more rabbis, what they were doing is that they were teaching what previous scribes had taught rather than the Scripture. So it would be as if I were to come up here and my main sermon was to, about, to, was to be about what uh, John MacArthur happened to say or, um, you know, a, a, another famous uh, a Bible teacher. Um, uh, um, we can go back in history a little bit more. Maybe if I did something like one of the Reformers, if I talked about Martin Luther or I talked about John Calvin. And there would be nothing wrong with quoting these guys and, and, and showing that this is what we're saying today has passed the test of time. And that's often why I will use people and voices from history. But if all I talked about was what Martin Luther said or what Calvin said, there would be something wrong with that because the authority is Martin Luther or John Calvin. The authority that we have is God's word, and we need to come back to God's word all the time. But what had happened was is that they were going back to these previous people all the time, these previous scribes, and so there was a sense of authority that was missing. But when Jesus came, Jesus received the scribe from uh, the scroll from the scribe. Jesus read, and Mark doesn't tell us anything about what he talked about, because that's not the point. Mark's not telling us what he taught, because that's not the point. The point is how he taught. And he read, he rolled the scroll back, handed it back to the scribe, sat down, and began to teach. And it was astonishing to the people. Because he didn't have to rely on previous scribes. He taught with authority. And it was alarming to the people. Mark actually uses two different words in the original language here about that and to describe the people's response to this. And both of them have this idea of it was cause for alarm or concern. The idea of amazement, astonishment, but it was a motivation to consider strongly. Okay, um, so this is what, what, what's happening here. Then Mark also shows about the demon standing up there and crying out to Jesus, and he saw that Jesus, how the demons responded to Jesus' teaching here. And so there was a sense of alarm from the people that were gathered, from the disciples, and from the demons. The demons, they recognized Jesus' authority, and they were alarmed that the time had come. Now, whether or not we, something said is alarming to us, is completely dependent upon the person who is the one doing the talking. I texted Peter Dow today, or, or this week, and I said, hey, I, I, I may be using you as a sermon illustration. That's what every church member loves to hear. 
And so um, I said, um, how long have you worked at your company? I knew it's been a long time. And he's worked it for 33 years. Okay, he's worked at that company for 33 years. So here's the illustration. If I were to walk up to Peter today and say, hey, man, I don't think you're going to have a job on Monday. Now, he may look at me like, well, okay, why would you say that? What do you know that I don't know? But I doubt he's going to get that pit in his stomach feeling, you know? But if you were to walk into work on Monday and his boss or supervisor were to say, I don't think you're going to have a job here much longer, he would have a pit in his stomach, right? Now, the difference is the person who said it. I have no authority over his job. I have no authority over his workplace. And so there's really no reason for him to be concerned if I think that he's going to have a job there or not. But his supervisor has authority there. And so that would cause alarm in his life. The same is true with Jesus here. Jesus has all the authority in the world. And when we recognize, we realize that his response, what he says, is they're not just things to contemplate, they're calls to action here. And so we need to consciously recognize Jesus' authority in our lives. And when we do that, we realize then that his commands have an alarming effect. As I said, they're calls to action, not just to contemplate. I use the word alarm because alarm is a word that has the idea of a call to action, not just something to think about. If, if you're in a building and, and, and someone uh, yells the word uh, fire and pulls the, uh, the, the fire alarm, most likely you're not going to sit there and think, you know, I wonder what decibel these things are at, you know? It seems rather loud, kind of annoying. I wonder, I wonder who makes these alarms anyway. You know, you're not going to think that. You're going to say, I need to find the next exit. I'm going to make sure my loved ones are finding the next exit or the nearest exit as well, right? Because alarm is a call to action. And that's what I want us to understand here is that Jesus' commands here, they're not just for contemplation. They are calls to action, okay? So Jesus' commands are not just for something to think about. They are calls to action. When we recognize Jesus' authority, we understand that and respond. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing when we recognize Jesus' authority in our life. It's a good thing when we recognize that he is in complete control and we look at the commands that he's given to us and we say, this is what we should be doing. So good things happen to those who recognize God's authority. We've seen the financial power gets gets lessened, it loses its grip. We've seen family expectations lose its controlling power over us. We've seen Jesus' teaching because alarming. And lastly, what I want to talk about in this idea of good things happening to those who recognize God's authority is that opposition loses its voice. Opposition loses its voice. First of all, we have the demon in verse 24 saying, what do you have to do with this, Jesus? Are you going to kill us now? Um, Jesus then silences him immediately. Later on, we're going to see another demon or, or other demons that Jesus is going to deal with here uh, after he, he uh, um, goes into the house of, of Simon in Capernaum there. And we're going to see that uh, later on, people bring uh, people sick to him and then he cast out demons. But Mark is very clear to say in verse 34 that he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. 
And we can get into all the reasons why Jesus insisted on the silence of it. The, the short answer is, and there's different theories on this, but the short answer is, in my mind, is that the time wasn't ready for Jesus to reveal um, who he was in the terms of he didn't want people just only coming to him because he was a miracle worker, although he did do miracles to show his authority. But here Jesus silences the demons. And then also, not only that, Mark is again careful here. You, you have to pick, on these, pick up on these things as Mark is, 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 is communicating this. He clearly delineates and differentiates between physical sickness and spiritual oppression. Did you notice that? With, Mar, with, with uh, Mar, uh, Peter's mother-in-law being sick with a fever. He's very clear. says what she was sick from. He heals her. Later on, uh, after the Sabbath was on, that's what it means by when the evening, um, the evening at sundown they brought to him in verse 32. The reason why is because they were waiting for Sabbath to be done so they could bring, because uh, they couldn't do work on the Sabbath. So as soon as Sabbath was done at sundown, there was an influx of Peter. The way it's written, they just kept coming. A crowd kept coming to the house where Jesus was staying. And he was healing many people there and casting out demons. And here Mark is showing the difference between physical and spiritual oppression here in opposition. And so we see this clearly put in here. The main point is that Jesus has authority over opposition both in spiritual realms and in the physical realm. We need to understand the authority that Jesus has over opposition. Um, I, I enjoy reading about uh, different people from history. And several years ago, I read uh, Ronald Reagan's autobiography. It's called An American Life. And uh, he has great stories in there. One of the things that Reagan was good at, whether he agreed with his politics or not is irrelevant, um, he was the master at deflecting criticism and opposition. I don't know if some of you will remember this. Um, it was in 1984, or leading up to the 1984 uh, re-election campaign. Uh, he was against Walter Mondale. Remember this? Okay, some of you remember this. So he's, he's against Mondale. And the question that was coming up a lot in, from Mondale's uh, side was the attack on Reagan's age. Uh, he was 73 years old. Ronald Reagan was 73 years old in 1984. And uh, Reagan and Mondale had a debate, and, and Reagan, when you, when you read about the story in his autobiography, he talks about how he, he was so pressured, people kept filling his heads with arguing points and things, and then he, he got flustered, and so he went out to the debate, and he said he performed terribly in this first debate. And people then were talking about his age. Of course, he couldn't remember things and all this stuff. So it came time for the second debate, and Reagan said, I'm not going to prepare at all. He says, I'm just going to go. I'm going to speak from my heart. I'm going to answer the questions of the way they are. Well, uh, sure enough, the question of his age came up right in the beginning of the debate. And Reagan, at that point, he says, no, he talks to the monitor. He says, yeah, I'm going to stop you there. He says, you know, I will not. I refuse. To, uh, for political gain to exploit the youth and inexperience of my opponent. Okay? I mean, just totally turned it around. I mean, then, what, then there's a camera shot of Mondale 
He's just looking, he's like, he's just, he's laughing. He's like, you couldn't believe that this has happened. And it totally just turned it around, totally deflected the opposition there in one sentence. And the rest is history, as you know, he carried 49 states in the election, okay, Reagan did. And it was just an, it was just an amazing moment in presidential debate history there of how he was able to deflect that uh, opposition. You know, we serve a God who there, there is no opposition that can frustrate God. There is no spiritual problem that you're going through, a spiritual difficulty that Jesus is not authority over. There is no physical sickness or physical thing that you're dealing with that hinders God's sovereign plan over your life. You see, this is what Mark is saying here. He's saying, look, you recognize the authority over this is that even the demons, he could just say, stop talking. And they would stop talking. He would say, get out from that person. And they would get out from that person. We see in the New Testament, particularly in the earthly ministry of Christ, we see an uptick of demon possession. There's a couple of reasons, a couple of theories for that. I don't have time to get into all that. But one of the ways, one of the things, I, the reasons why I think that that is, is because... What does Jesus represent? He represented God becoming man. He represented heaven in man, if you will. He represents that, that God's plan of using humans for his purposes. Satan is the master copier. Satan is the master deceiver. And he's trying to do the exact same thing. He's trying to bring his power into humans. He's trying to use humans for his purposes as well, mirroring what Jesus is doing what God is doing. And in that moment, Jesus says, stop, get out. And they listen without a word. When it came to physical sickness, immediately he could take care of it and he could heal it right away. You say, well, why doesn't he? I don't know. I know some of you deal with things. I know some of you have chronic things all the time. I pray for you. I can think, I'm not going to point you out right now, but there are some people right here I'm looking at, and I, right now, you are on my prayer list that I pray for because I know you have physical pain and suffering every day. And I wish, I wish I could just snap my fingers and it'd be gone. But I don't have authority over it. But Jesus does. Jesus does have authority over it. And so what you can understand and you can, in faith, you can believe. You can believe that if you're still dealing with it, it is because he is using it for his purposes and for his glory in some ways. And you look forward to that day like Ralph Martin is experiencing right now. You look forward to that day when you won't have to deal with it anymore. But for right now, Jesus has authority over it. And that opposition and physical pain is an opposition to our spiritual lives. And there are spiritual battles that some of you are going through right now. Understand that it is not greater than Jesus' authority in his life. And if he's letting it continue to press you, it's because there is growth to be there. It's not because he, the, he doesn't love you. And so if you're thinking that because of what you're going through and of what you, that, uh, uh, that, that pain that you're going through is because of, of 
of, you know, God being ticked off with you or something like that, that's demonic. If you think that you're not worthy of God's forgiveness, that's a spiritual battle. If you think you're not worthy of that, that's demonic. And let Jesus' authority right now silence that because Jesus says, he just says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who walked with Jesus, wrote those words. And so years later, you and I can cling to them. And so if we are going to be um, uh, followers of Christ, we need to understand that we need to recognize Jesus' authority. And when we recognize his authority, those opposing voices grow much fainter in our minds. They grow much fainter. I don't say, and again, I'm not saying they're going to go completely away because we live in a sinful world. But in heaven, we will no longer have to worry about those things. And so what I would say is this, we need to recognize that Jesus is over all things, and that means every circumstance, and he's using it for his purposes, and the circumstances that you find yourselves in are not hindering his plan. The only thing that I can think of from the, the, the pages of Scripture that ever hindered Jesus' earthly ministry was unbelief. And when people just did not believe and did not recognize him for who he was. So I said from the beginning... And all throughout this message, as I draw it to a close, is this. Good things happen to those who recognize God's authority. I said that earlier it could cause for some awkward moments if we didn't recognize authority in our lives. But it's more than just awkwardness we need to be worried about with failing to recognize Jesus' authority. Failing to recognize Jesus' authority leads to a difficult life. And so I, I would say that we need to follow Christ and recognize his complete authority, just as Mark is pointing out time and time again in this book here. Now, granted, Jesus asks us to do hard things at times, but obeying his authority over our lives will cause for personal satisfaction and joy that is unparalleled. But more importantly than our personal satisfaction and joy, it gives God the honor and glory that he so richly deserves. So let me give you a couple application points to take away uh, this week, and maybe you can discuss them in your small groups. So this week... Number one, let me encourage you to think through your finances and ask if they are submitted to Jesus' authority or for your personal enjoyment and wishes. So think through how you spend your money. Think through the goals that you have with your income that you have and, and how you use your money. Is it under the submission of God's authority? Number two, think through your family decisions. How do you spend, how do you spend your time with your family? Is it under the authority of Jesus or is it a pursuit of simply peace and quiet? And I get that. Man, Anuk and I love when bedtime comes around for the kids. Man, we love it because we're getting to the point where bedtime for us is pretty soon after that. Um, but we got to have much loftier goals than just get the kids to the bed. We got to have better goals for our families than that. Read through some of Jesus' commands and ask if you are submitting to them or negotiating around them. Recognizing Jesus' authority, most of you know what Jesus wants. You know it. But is it, are we submitting to it or negotiating it? Finally, believe that the power of Satan is conquered and that physical pain is under Jesus' authority. So these four things, I encourage you to spend time thinking about it this week. Maybe in your small groups, these are part of the discussion times that you can have uh, this week. But understand, what Mark is trying to get us to understand is that Jesus, he's establishing Jesus' authority. And what we need to know, and we need to ask ourselves, is are we submitted to Jesus' authority?
Well, let's pray, and then we'll sing, Still My Soul Be Still. Father, thank you that we can look at Mark's gospel here, and we can look at what Jesus has established for us. And Lord, I pray that today we would recognize Jesus's complete authority in our lives, and that we would submit to it, and we would find that satisfaction and joy and hope that is um, often eluding us because we're not recognizing the proper authority. Father, I pray that uh, we would do that not just for our own personal gain, but as we said, because you deserve it. You deserve our complete submission and obedience. And we love you. In Christ's name, amen.